So I'm going to go back to using my example of this model of looking at action. Things we do, things we say, things we refrain from doing or saying. So the motivation or the intention is what has me pick up this object to give it to you. Okay, maybe it's a motive of pure generosity. Maybe there are a few strings attached in there. Could be anything. And we use mindfulness to understand where we're coming from. In like the work context, I suggested that before a meeting, before a conversation, before some significant encounter, you pay attention to what you would most like to see come out of it. That's one way of getting in touch with your intention. Do I want to come to a resolution? Do I want to grind that person into dust? Do I want to appear as completely right? Do I want to be helpful? Right, it's just one avenue for kind of pivoting your attention to see what your intention might be. So we use mindfulness to be in touch with where we're coming from. Is a freely given gift? Does it have a lot of strings attached? Do I have expectations about being thanked or whatever? And then the second part of an action after the motivation is the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the execution of what we actually do or say. So perhaps out of a beautiful motive, genuinely generous, I pick up the Kuan Yin statue, I hand it to one of you, but it also is useful for me to be aware of context, right? Like, there's only one statue. There are a lot of people in this room. Maybe this is something best done privately, or it's not even my statue. Maybe I should take care of that first, right? Before I give it away. It's like we pay attention to a bigger picture, really to the context of where we are in this given moment. I sometimes call it our best guess of the most appropriate way to do something or say something. And just as we learn through mindfulness where we're coming from, it's also said that if we deepen the quality of loving kindness or compassion, we will come from a different place more and more. So if largely we've been motivated by fear or a sense of separation in what we do or what we say and we practice or we strengthen loving kindness, we will more and more be coming from a place of connection. So both research and the uh, ancient texts say the arena of the psyche that is transformed through the development of loving kindness is that arena of motivation or intention. So that's a realm that can continually grow and change. We can change our habits, that default story which is guiding our choices. 
And the arena, the second one, the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the execution, can also always change. We learn from feedback, we learn from mistakes, we learn from sheer skills building, learning how to communicate in a better way, or paying attention to context in a, in a better way. It's not like we'll be perfect, but both of those realms are realms where there is the possibility of continually growing and changing. Okay, so we have the motivation, and we have the skillfulness or the unskillfulness of the action, which is really based on context. Now, often in teaching loving-kindness, we emphasize the distinction between those two. They're not actually one thing. When we think of them as one thing, that's the place where people start to think, oh, were I to be coming from a loving place, were I to have a motivation of compassion, I could only say yes. I could only smile. I could only be sweet. I could only give them all my money. I could only let them move into my apartment. I could only let them hurt me again, whatever it might be. Whereas if we understand these are obviously related, but they're also distinct, we realize that, oh, we may be coming from a genuinely loving and compassionate place, but our best guess of the most appropriate way to act in this moment, in this context, is pretty fierce. It's very intense. It's saying no. No, I'm not going to give you any more money. No, I'm not going to let you move into my apartment. Whatever it might be. So does that make sense? The, the, the importance of that distinction? Very commonly, we do morph them together. You know, they conflate. And then we're stuck in those images of what a loving person or persona needs to look like. You know, so sweet, so compliant, um, giving it all away, whatever it might be. And it's also one of the arenas where uh, we sit in a lot of uncertainty. You know, people always want a formula. Like, what is the loving thing to say in this situation? Like, I don't know, really, actually. You know, and, and sometimes we don't know. That's our, why I say our best guess. We really try to pay attention. We really try to learn from our, our mistakes. So that we have more and more mindfulness in that, in that bigger sense. So it's like, that's like wisdom and compassion. Compassion may be molding the motivation. Wisdom is shaping the direction of the action. Do we say yes? Do we say no? Okay, we, we call it discernment probably in uh, more like regular English than, than the word wisdom, but it's wisdom, right? So then we have the third aspect of an action. Uh, we have the motivation, we have the skillfulness of the execution, and then we have the third aspect, which is like the immediate result. I hand someone this Kuan Yin statue. I'm coming from a really genuinely generous place. 
I do it in as skillful and sensitive and careful a way as I possibly can. Maybe, you know, you just checked your cell phone messages in that lunch break and you just found out you won $50 million in the lottery. It's like you could not care less about this Kuan statue. You know? like, you're on your way to China to get one of your own. You know, like, right? So I hand it to you and sort of nod distantly and walk away. So that tends to be devastating to us. And I'm not suggesting that we not care. I mean, of course we care, we're human beings. But the question becomes, how much do we care? Do we completely define our own sense of integrity by the reaction of someone else? Or can we be in touch with what our motivation was, truly, honestly? and the relative skillfulness of our action and not completely depend on someone's reaction for us to know who we are. Because if we do, we're lost. There will never be a time when we can control everything. Remember, everything arises when conditions come together for it to arise. You can't really say to somebody, something's gonna happen at two o'clock. Please come into the room not having checked your cell phone messages, not having checked your email, not having had a single conversation, and not having had a thought in your head all morning. I want you to come in as a completely blank slate so this something can happen. It's just life is not like that. Right? So all these conditions coming together and coming apart. So I'm not suggesting we not care, but it is a very interesting question. How much do we care? How do we decide the rightfulness of our action? And if we are completely dependent on what is outside of our control, which is how people are reacting, it's going to be a lot of trouble. In this context, I usually tell a story about when my first book, Loving Kindness, came out, um, it took me a very, very long time to write that book. If you ever see the original hardcover, the blurbs on the back, I think, are very funny. Somebody said, um, we've waited a long time for this book. Someone else said, in this long-awaited first book. Uh, one of my friends wrote something like, Sharon Salzberg has finally given us. <laughs> And I made the publisher take out the final, I thought that's too much. Um, it took me a very long time to write the book. And it meant a huge, huge amount to me when it finally came out. And um, not long after it came out, I was in California. And I was having lunch with somebody. And she said, oh, Sharon. You wrote that book in such a way, it's just like being with you. It's like sitting down and having a conversation with you. And I was ecstatic. I thought, wow, you could not say a nicer thing, I'm sure, to a writer. And what a beautiful thing to say, and it'd take me forever to write the book. And um, It was so long, and so many times I didn't think I could do it. And, Finally, finally, I did it. What a beautiful thing to say. So I was so excited by the comment that that night I was having dinner with a whole other group of people and I brought it up. 
And someone at the dinner table said, well, that's not true. She said, I'm reading the book. It doesn't sound anything like you. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, okay. You can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner. Or you can take a moment and reflect. It's the same book. Two different people are talking about the same book which I wrote with whatever was motivating me at the time, with whatever level of skill I could put into the writing at the time. One person took it one way, another person took it another way, and I would never want to imply or pretend I didn't notice the difference. And of course we notice the difference, and we care, but how much do we care? Can we understand that our motivation figures into evaluating this action. The level of skill figures into evaluating this action and we will never be completely in control of how somebody reacts because life's just not like that. So we need a measure of balance, of wisdom, of equanimity to recognize there's praise and there's blame. It's always going to be that way. And we need to have mindfulness to really try to be as sensitive and aware as we can of the context in which we're operating. What might be the most skillful way to do something? We need mindfulness to know our motivation, to really pay attention to where we're coming from. And we need loving kindness to continue to refine and transform that field of motivation. So we're not so dominated by fear. We're not so dominated by a story of separation, of being so cut off and alone. We, get, we develop loving kindness, I think, in the ways that I was describing, even in doing an exercise like mindfulness of the breath, where we're continually having to begin again, because it is the best way to begin again. We develop loving kindness through insight or wisdom. We just see that we live as part of an interconnected universe. It's not romantic, it's not fanciful, it's not sentimental. It's how things actually are. And I'm so interested in our time about how many dimensions of, of study show us this. It doesn't have to be a, a particularly spiritual understanding. Economics shows us this. Environmental consciousness shows us this. Even epidemiology shows us this. That what happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there. It ripples out over here. And what we do, it matters. I don't know how many of you might have seen the movie Contagion. Did you see it? It was some years ago, and uh, a friend of ours was a, a technical advisor on the film. Um, and it is basically modeled out. It wasn't just like something, you know, some script that was made out of nothing. The basic story is that day one, someone in Hong Kong has a really bad day. Day four, half the earth is wiped out. Um, and they modeled it out, right? Because we live in an interconnected universe. That's why I say it's not always a nice consideration, it's not always pleasant, 
but it's always true. There's the kind of theater-going experience where if you sneezed or something, everyone else was like, oh my God, what do you have? Um, It's just how things are. That our lives are interrelated, they're interwoven. It doesn't mean you like somebody, it means you know your life has something to do with them. Their life has something to do with you. That's really the feeling tone of loving kindness. It's not necessarily all gooey and, and warm. It's a deep, deep knowing that our lives are connected. And the corollary to that is everybody counts. Everybody matters. It's a way of including rather than excluding. That's what wisdom shows us. And we also cultivate loving kindness if we choose to cultivate loving kindness. That's the meditation. Um, There is a whole method for the deepening of loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness is the common translation of the word from Pali, the um, language of the original Buddhist text. The word is metta, M-E-T-T-A. And I don't know if the flyers or the brochures from the Insight Meditation Society are here. They usually follow me around wherever I go. Um, And sometimes you see from the artwork that it's a large brick building with white pillars and has this word up on top, metta, M-E-T-T-A. When we first moved in was February of 1976. And it was a, what we, the facility we bought was operating as a Catholic novitiate. And it was run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So that's what it said up above the doorway Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. And we got someone to get up on this very tall ladder. And we said to them, Could you please rearrange those letters so it says something about us? So they got up there and they played around and they came up with Metta. And what then ensued was really what we were doing all the time then, and even to some degree now, uh, which was a hot debate. Because there were people who said, well, you know, it's not a word anyone understands here. Why have something up there that no one understands? You know, we're not in Asia anymore. And the other side uh, was, which I was on, so I'm very happy I prevailed. was, I like it, you know, I like having it up there. I like it because when somebody calls for directions, whoever answers the phone can say it's a large brick building with white pillars and it's got this word up above, metta. And then they usually ask, what does that mean? And we say, that means loving kindness or that means love. So it's kind of a nice moment that I enjoy. Since my point of view doesn't always prevail there, I was especially happy. The literal meaning of the word metta is friendship. I think of it as a profound sense of connection. Loving kindness is just a little bit odd as a term because it's not so often we use it in casual conversation. Um, friendship, or some, some scholars actually prefer love. They say, just say love. 
But that, I think, is especially complicated because we use that term in so many different ways. Um, for a while, I had hoped that meta itself, as a word, would enter the culture and that people would just say meta, um, which hasn't really happened. A few years ago, this basketball player, and he was then in L.A., he was in the L.A. Lakers basketball team, uh, he changed his name to Meta World Peace, and I was very excited. <laughs> I thought, wow, you know, now it's going to happen. Everyone's going to talk about Meta. Say Meta, M-E-T-T-A. Everyone's going to talk about Meta. Uh, and there was a little burst of, of journalism that was interested in that. What is Meta? Uh, and then that faded. And then Meta, poor Meta, he it was last year or two years ago, he behaved very badly on the court. I forget exactly what he did. He did something not very good. And my friends were sending me all these headlines, real headlines, like, Meta fails us. And, you know, what's wrong with Meta? So I thought, I really wish him well. I think about him a lot. Um, so sometimes I just say meta, but I think the most important thing is the experience of it, you know, whatever we call it, because then we feel our way into it. That it's not something kind of sickly sweet. It's not determining what you're going to do, saying yes or no. It's really altering the place you're coming from as you relate to yourself and as you relate to others. And it's powerful precisely because it's true. We do live in an interconnected universe. And so that gives us a source of strength as we relate. In terms of doing the practice as a distinct practice, um, in sitting, which is the second way we're going to do it, we're going to start with walking, but in sitting, instead of gathering our attention around the feeling of the breath, we gather our attention around the silent repetition of certain phrases. The phrases are the way we are changing attention. Okay, so it's a practice, as I said last night, that's about a stretch. It's realizing, oh, I'm usually paying attention from just this one angle, like what's wrong with me, and I'm going to stretch to include wishing myself well, seeing the good inside myself. I usually only pay attention to certain kinds of people. I look right through others. And I'm going to stretch to see what it's like when I include those I normally might exclude. Things like that. So we realize we have certain ruts of attention, habits, and we're going to consciously move outside of them through employing these phrases. The phrases are usually very general because they need to be simple and they need to be something we're offering over and over again. What you don't want is something like very specific, like may I beat the may my plane be on time tomorrow? That would be one. That's a little too limited. Because then what about when you start thinking about your neighbor or your dry cleaner or whatever? So they're usually things like, may I be happy, may you be happy, because that's quite transferable. 
and we'll talk much more about it when we come back in for the sitting. The walking practice is kind of similar. In doing loving kindness while walking, uh, you don't need to slow down because you're not particularly paying attention to the sensations of the movement. Um, eyes open. And there are many, many styles and ways of doing it. I'm going to suggest my favorite, and you can experiment with it, whether you are walking or not. Okay? And that is to have a light attention on, sometimes three is too many if you're actually walking, because you also need to be aware of everything else going on around you. Let's say at least a couple of phrases directed toward yourself. So maybe you're walking and you are silently repeating, may I be happy, be peaceful, be happy, be peaceful. Sometimes you might want to time that with your step. And if you're not walking, if you're just sitting somewhere, eyes open, with people milling around you, that's also good. Okay, so you repeat the phrases for yourself. That's like the baseline. And then you include anyone who strongly comes to your mind. You see a person walking by. You hear a dog. You hear a bird. Or somebody from home like pops into your mind. Just for a few moments, include them like, oh, be happy. Then you go back to the phrases for yourself. Okay, so you don't have to do it that way. It's the way I prefer to do it because it's, especially if you're outside, there's a lot of life out there. You could really bounce around. And so to have that kind of container or baseline of the phrases for yourself gives you a grounding. And then you play. It's kind of interesting. Maybe you're afraid of dogs and you hear a dog. It's like, oh, be happy. And you sort of see everything that comes up. Or I do this all the time walking down the streets of New York. And all the judgments are still in place, but they're a little bit lighter, like, that's a terrible shirt. Oh, be happy. <laughs> right? So things kind of shift in there. You can have a really good time with your own mind. <laughs> and as always, the absolute essence of the practice is going to be beginning again. Your mind will go a million places. You realize that, see if you can come back to the repetition of the phrases, okay? So if you're walking, you can walk in a normal pace. Uh, if you're not walking, the same principles all apply. Eyes open, be aware of what's around you. Have a light resting in the repetition of phrases for yourself. And Bless you, and then just kind of play as beings come into your your mind, okay, using the phrases for yourself as the kind of baseline. And we will, again, we'll take about 25 minutes or so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.